Good morning, good friends. Just before we um, turn to the scriptures together, I just want to recommend a book to you. Have any of you seen Pointing to the Pasture Lands by J.I. Packer? Any of you seen this? This is a collection of the articles that he wrote for Christianity Today magazine. They've compiled them in one book. I've now decided if there's one book that I want to give to people which is as joyful as it is truthful, it's this book. So if you're an unhappy pastor, take up Packer's Pointing to the Pasture Lands and read what he says about bungee jumping, jazz, eating a second piece of chocolate cake, getting impatient in the airport, and a whole range of articles about um, deep and wonderful things. It's a great collection. And uh, I'm so grateful that people have put this together. This is the, the perfect birthday present for a weary pastor or pastor's wife uh, to buy. Pointing to the pasture lands. Is that, have I sold that to you? Yeah. yeah. You've made note of it? Great. Well, um, Andrew has prayed for us, so I won't add to his prayer. But let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is a difficult passage to read in public. It's uh, certainly difficult to read in a public church building today. And yet we are confident that this is the word of God and that God is good to us. <laughs> we just need you to get right up close to the mic. Sorry, is that all right? If you, it's going to solve a lot of problems. You can get right, right close to the mic. Okay. <laughs> And I'm going to move you away. That speaker's causing us problems. <laughs> Just your close proximity to that. Try now. Okay. I think we should be fine. It's uh, this is an, an adventure, isn't it? I'm so impressed the way you keep cutting out the words of the music as we're singing, you know, <laughs> so that we have to walk by faith and not by sight. It's a fantastic <laughs> little piece of genius. Never, never thought of doing this before, but there we are. Okay, uh, let's uh, read 1 Timothy 2. Let me tell you that uh, coming from Sydney, where we have the Sydney Morning Herald, which is probably as left as any newspaper in Australia, and the letters at the moment are observing the census of Australia and the decline in religion, as if that were... Um, well, it is a sadness, but it's certainly it's like people telling us, you know, I've uh, decided to stay on the Titanic. You know, you don't know whether to you don't know whether to laugh or cry, really, do you? When people tell you they've turned their back on Christ, it's just a grief. But the letters are basically, well, of course, the the church is declining because they keep holding on to these antiquated views, not least, you know, men and women and um, roles in the church, and so the letters of the People of Sydney to the Herald are angry about a chapter like this. Uh, but we're going to read it uh, and we're going to, I think, see the goodness of God. So let me uh, read 1 Timothy 2. And I'm reading from the NIV. <clears throat> 
Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles or the nations. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, according themselves, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, there's enough in that passage, isn't there, to alarm the most faithful believer, let alone the angry unbeliever who comes. Well, I'm not sure whether you um, absorbed a little of last night, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm sorry, a first night and a first talk is always hard for everybody. And uh, it may have been a bit of a, ra a rant and a rave. But we're moving in away from the message of 1 Timothy 1 now to the meetings, the gathering of God's people. And because life is very complicated, it's a very wonderful thing that Paul sets out two priorities for the meetings. One, of course, is prayer, and one, of course, is preaching. I don't know if you've heard that story before of the police cadets who are doing an exam, and uh, one of the questions says this, you're travelling down in your police car and you come across a big accident where about seven or eight cars have piled into one another. A large crowd has gathered around and in the crowd, a large dog has just bitten a small boy. A man has just grabbed the handbag of a lady and is running away. Some people have become started looting the shops around. One of the cars has hit a fire hydrant and water is bursting into the air. And in the far distance, you see the fire has broken out on the third floor of a nearby building. What is your first course of action? And one of the police cadets wrote, carefully remove uniform and mingle with crowds. <laughs> And there is always the temptation to do that when life gets really complicated. And here is the Apostle Paul setting out two simple things, praying and preaching, which are exactly the priorities of Acts chapter 6. You remember, we will not neglect the work, but we'll give ourselves to prayer and preaching. It looks as though this chapter is about a public gathering, because the prayers are obviously public prayers. It looks in verses 8 to 10 as if he's concerned with the dress of people, for example, in the public meeting. And in verse 11, it looks as though it is a teaching-learning context. 
You probably know that uh, verses 11 to 15 are a battleground and that lots of guns have been aimed at these verses and there are libraries of papers and books written about verses 11 to 15. Although they may be controversial in the West, I suggest to you that the most controversial verse in chapter 2 is verse 5, where we read that there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. Across the world, that would be the most controversial verse, even if in the West we don't like verses 11 to 15, or some don't. All this is by introduction as we come to the chapter, dear friends, because there are those who disagree over how to handle these verses. And these verses are not salvation issues. This is not like Galatians, where the gospel is at stake, eternity is at stake. But uh, I do want us to see chapter 2 in context of letter and verses 11 to 15 in the context of of God's purposes to see people saved. We're not to get out our scissors and cut these verses out because they are not palatable. Somehow we've got to sit under them. And I've always been grateful for uh, Jim Packer's view of inerrancy, which is largely to have humility. It's to come to the text as if it's innocent until proven guilty, and then to discover that it's so often more wonderful than we ever imagined. Well, uh, in case you have very strong feelings about these verses, let me hasten to say that the roof of your church will not collapse if you take a different view to the one I'm about to suggest. But uh, as I say, we do trust God, the God who says, I teach what is best for you. We don't expect unbelievers to appreciate these verses, but in the born-again community, we trust God. And we need to remember the great desire in chapter 2, verse 3, uh, is that God wants people to be saved, and therefore it would be very unlikely, wouldn't it, if he says in 2.3, I want people to be saved, and now I'm going to saddle you with a really unhelpful system of church. <laughs> it's just it's too odd, isn't it, that God would say, I've got a plan for the world, but I'm going to make life really difficult for you. No, they, uh, they fit together. So let's think about, first of all, verses 1 to 7, what I've called prayer and salvation. Imagine God's people enter the building, Paul is not interested as much in the welcome desk, although that's helpful. He's not so interested in the heating system or the PA. Or he's not so interested in the musicians, although they're wonderful. And he's not so interested in the coffee afterwards either. But he does want to lock in prayer. That prayer will take place. And it will be high, lifted up to God. It'll be global, wide, and it'll be deep in its thought. And of course, he also locks in preaching in the second half of the chapter. So it's a very systematic letter. Let's start with the gospel, chapter one. Let's go on to what we do when we get together, Timothy, pray, preach. He uses four words for prayer, uh, but his emphasis is that the prayer would be thoughtful, global, personal. Paul says this is this prayer is to take place so we may live peaceful and quiet lives. This doesn't mean comfortable, middle-class, bourgeois, happy, enjoyable lives. Uh, what we're doing when we pray these prayers is that we're acknowledging that only God can provide the circumstances which will help us to live out our part in the world. 
One writer has said of the Roman conditions, if you became a believer, if you were converted to Christ in first century Roman territory, there would be a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit and shame you as a social and moral deviant who endangers the common good. Are we beginning to feel that return? Have you read uh, Stephen McAlpine's book, Being the Bad Guys? where he argues that uh, once upon a time we might have been the good guys and then we became the kind of the nobodies and now we are the bad guys. The quote goes on to say, the procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressing the minority community to conform to conventional, that is secular values and standards of conduct. Sounds very familiar. In other words, we need the Lord's help to play our part in the world, and that's why we must seek his help. He desires people to be saved. We depend on him. So let's lock in our prayer times as we meet together. Pretty obvious, isn't it? And the four words that Paul chooses will keep our prayers balanced. He says there's to be petition and prayer and intercession and thanksgiving. And you always know, don't you, when you've gone to church and the person has actually covered so many good areas in the prayer time. We used to have a man uh, in our church who was a professor of English and he would come up the front with no notes whatsoever and he would begin to pray. It was just an absolute privilege to hear him and he'd begin with the character of God and then he'd go on to our own uh, failings and then he'd go on to the mercy of God and then the world of God and then we'd travel around and we'd come back to the character of God. It was just a privilege to hear him pray. And uh, it wasn't showing off. He did it most God-honoringly. And it's a great privilege when people lead public prayers well. I wonder if these prayers going up to God, remember George Herbert's definition of prayer, reversed thunder, which comes from the book of Revelation, I think chapter 7, 8, 9, 8, where the prayers of the people go up and the thunder of heaven comes down. So I wonder if these prayers, when we pray in church, even though we may not concentrate and we may forget that we've even prayed, but God does listen. He does take our prayers seriously, more seriously than we do. I wonder if we might find at the end of the prayer time on a Sunday morning that God has decided to change the mind or the policies of leaders around the world. It's not impossible, is it? I wonder whether it might be possible as we lift up our prayers quite mindlessly some Sundays that God had opened some doors for mission that were closed. I wonder if as we lift up our prayers on a Sunday, he might comfort or deliver people who were being persecuted around the world in ways that are just miraculous. So I'm so thankful that as the psalmist says, his ear is attentive to our cry, even when we're not attentive to what we're crying. And it is great, isn't it, when public prayer is done well. It needs to be worked on. Beyond the privilege for us, of course, is the taking of God seriously. When I was at uh, North Sydney for 30 years, we worked hard at public prayer. We often had one person lead public prayer, but if they didn't do it well, they often got left off the prayer roster. It had to be done well. It couldn't be done sort of carelessly or shallowly. And um, sometimes we got a few people to lead different prayers, and sometimes we had public prayer. 
It was always a risky thing, but uh, there were times where we said we're going to have public prayer and people would step out of their pews and come up and pray. Sometimes it was wonderful, sometimes it wasn't always so wonderful. Uh, we always, there's always oddballs in the church, as you know. Um, we as be said, when the light shines, the moths come. And uh, I remember one dear boy, well, well on the spectrum, got up and thanked God for Johnny Cash, whose music he liked very much, and then sat down. And we were all a little bewildered to know how enthusiastically to amen this prayer and what the visitor would think. But uh, that's the risk you take with public prayer. But uh, we tried to work at it, and I hope you do try to work at it. I hope you do get people who will think hard about how to pray in a balanced way, a God-honouring way, an edifying way. Spurgeon said that he guarded his prayers more than his pulpit because he wanted it to be done well. So if Paul lays down the gospel in chapter 1 of two of one Timothy, he then goes on to prayerfulness. And um, it's a great incentive to pray, isn't it, knowing that God wants people to be saved. What does it mean in chapter 2, verse 3, when it says that God wants people to be saved? Uh, have you thought about this? I hope you have. Does it mean that uh, God wants all people to be saved, but he can't do it? He's just frustrated. So he's like the pastor at Christmas who's put a leaflet in every letterbox and hopes that everybody in the community will come, but they just don't come. And is God like that, deeply disappointed in heaven, wanting but just can't do it? I think we want to rule that out, don't we? Does it mean that he wants all types of people to be saved, all kinds of people, different nationalities, different ages, different stages? Uh, so it's not as though God doesn't want all without exception, but he wants all without distinction. Does that make sense? He's not saying, I want all without exception to be saved. He's saying, I want all without distinction to be saved. This is a popular view, and it's a neat view. I don't know whether it does justice to the bigness of the God who says things like, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, or Jesus who weeps over the city of Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had come and taken refuge under my wings. In other words, there's something more wonderful about this God wanting people to be saved. And so somehow, as we deal with this text, that God wants all people to be saved, but all people are not being saved, you in the Reformed tradition, I in the Reformed tradition, have to hold this text seriously with one hand and the facts that people are not all being saved with the other hand. In other words, we have to hold the wideness of the invitation with one hand and we have to hold the narrowness of the road with the other hand. And it would be a pity, I think, if we downplayed the bigness of the invitation. As if God is quite happy to fold his arms in heaven and say, well, I never meant everybody. I just meant people without distinction. Which has a kind of a slightly cool, careless feel about it. But come back to me if I've been the grit in your oyster. Um... So we've got to hold these things together. On the last day, we're going to praise him, aren't we, for doing all things well. 
In chapter 2, verse 5, we read that there is one God. This is the Shema of Deuteronomy 4. And uh, this is a shock to the globe, isn't it, that there is one God? Uh, talking to Reuben and Sean this morning about their visit to in India and this uh, proliferation of idols. And then the Bible calmly says in 2.5, there's only one God. So when the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 19 are calling to Baal and slashing themselves to get his attention, the problem is that there is no Baal. Okay, you might as well be calling to a teapot. There is not a Baal up there. And uh, when a person says there is a God called Allah, this very restricted Allah, he's not there. It, this is an illusion. This is a, this is a grief. There is only one God up there. And because there is only one God, we love people by urging them to him through the mediator Christ Jesus. Just as if we were in a burning building and we knew that only one door had been unlocked, we don't love people by saying, pick your door. I don't want to be exclusive. You know, you pick your door. We love people by pushing them to the door that we know opens. And if we're on the Titanic and we know there's only one lifeboat that has no holes in it, we don't love people by saying, pick any lifeboat you like. We love people by pushing them to the lifeboat that will carry them from one shore to the next. And we love people by pointing them to Christ because we're persuaded that he's risen and that he can carry people who come to him. So there are many ways to Jesus, but only one way to God. He is the only mediator, the only bridge, and he's able to bring God and people together, answering the wrath of God with his justice and answering our guilt with his mercy. Now, we need no other mediator. We don't need Mary. We don't need, we don't need to tap a saint who'll tap Mary, who'll tap Jesus, who'll tap God. One mediator, says Paul, and to imply that Jesus needs help is, is a blasphemy. Why is Christ in verse 5 called the man, the man Christ Jesus? Well, because the emphasis here is on his work of being a ransom, verse 6. So notice again, the sufficiency of the ransom is for all people. Why is Jesus' death so great? I don't know if any of you conduct Anzac services, but at the church I was at, we had um, a cross from Poziers in France from World War I on the wall, and the second 17th, and when I began, the first 17th soldiers from the First World War would come and um, join in the service and one of the old men would read the ode and uh, it was very wonderful. But I often thought to myself how difficult it was for the preacher because we've just had this big emphasis on all the people who died and then the preacher gets up and says, I'm going to tell you about one more person who died. And the people who've come think, well, <clears throat> this is just one of many. But we can't think like that, can we? Because Jesus, in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, is the infinite man. He's the infinite person, and his death is more significant globally and eternally in depth and height and length and breadth than all the people who give their lives because of its, of its infinite nature. And the fact that one drop of the blood of Christ is sufficient for, let's imagine, a thousand worlds of sinners. There's something extraordinary 
about this death of Christ, which needs to be explained. And it's a historical event, verse 6. It's been witnessed and recorded. And Paul says, this is our message. Why is, that, why is the cross our message? Because that's where God opened the door. That's where we're able to look back and say there at the cross, Good Friday, 3 p.m., my sins were carried away. And therefore, I'm able to look up to God, having believed on Christ and know that I'm accepted, that I know what the final verdict will be. I can go forward and meet him, as Jude says, without fault and with great joy. So the cross is the proper symbol of Christianity. And one of the keys to the Christian life, my friends, is not looking in the mirror so much. Because if you look in the mirror at your own performance all the time, you'll either get depressed or occasionally proud. And what we need to do is look out the window back to Good Friday on the cross and say his performance, that's the secret. That's the key to my life. Well, it's very important, isn't it, to see Paul say in verse 7, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, I'm a true and faithful teacher. This is a packed uh, paragraph, verses 1 to 7, to pray for the world which God loves, for whom there is room in the victory of Christ. The world may be more confused than ever, and it is, but this text remains true and wonderful. Calvin says, and this may encourage you if you feel the season is very difficult as I do, the season for evangelism, Calvin says, we're not, supposed, we're not surprised that during the winter trees are bare, fields are covered in snow, for in spring comes life and God has ordained season to follow season. Let us therefore not accuse him when he will bring about what he has planned. So let's trust him in a difficult phase. It's a difficult time to be a Christian. It's a difficult time to be a pastor. Let's trust him. We're in a difficult season. He knows how to change the seasons. Okay, that's verses 1 to 7. Now let's uh, turn to verses 8 to 15. These uh, verses in 8 to 10, which have to do with men and women, uh, do two very wonderful things. First of all, they continue the theme of spiritual power. How is the church to be effective? It's not to be carnal. It's to be spiritual. And um, just as verses 1 to 2 is a call to prayer, verses 8 to 10 is a call to godliness. Our prayerfulness, our godliness, these are weapons that God uses. And the verses also, 8 to 10, prepare the way for the roles that men and women have, because men and women are equal but different. I know this is a very um, controversial area, especially for the pagan world. Um, round the corner from the church where I was, there was a very uh, prestigious girls' school, and the headmistress, who professed to be a Christian, but in my opinion was not a Christian, um, was absolutely hostile to the idea of 2 Timothy chapter 1, no, 1 Timothy chapter 2. She was, she was very hostile to 1 Timothy chapter 2. But the funny thing was, she was absolutely fixated on her role. There was absolutely no question that she would share being headmistress with anybody else. And so if I'd said to her, are all the people in your school equal, she would, of course, have had to say yes. And if I'd said, do they all have the same role? Could they all share the headmistress role? Absolutely not. But when she looks at the church... 
perfectly happy with the quality, deeply unhappy with roles. So understanding the roles in the school, not understanding the roles in the family of God. Well, in these verses 8 to 10, where Paul says, I want men to pray, I want women to dress, he's identifying the false weapons that men and women can use, men tending to force, women tending to charm. Now, don't get angry with me because I know that men can badly try charm and women could probably badly try force. But generally, men use aggression and women can use outward appeal. And the Apostle Paul is calling on the men to pray, not to be muscly, but to pray, and the women to be godly, not to be superficial. That's what he's calling for. The lifting of the hands in the text is probably cultural, and the gold and the pearls is probably cultural as well. He's not calling on men to forget their strengths, but to remember their weakness. He's not calling on the women to be drab, but to remember what true beauty is. I'm old enough to remember Billy Graham coming to Australia in the 68 crusade. I was alive for the 59 crusade, but I didn't go to it. But I have the old recordings of the 59 crusade. And one of the talks in the 59 crusade was on the home. It was an absolutely amazing talk where Billy Graham talked about the home life and how it was kind of crumbling. And it was a very funny talk. And then with almost no gospel whatsoever, he then called on people to come forward who came forward in their droves, knowing that their home was not so great and they needed Christ. But of course, the power in a way of the 59 crusade was that he was speaking to so many he'd been churched for years. When he came back in 68, he discovered that people were not churching. And of course, in 79, even the grandparents were not churching. And now down the track, we're well past this. But he told a lovely story of uh, when he was in the UK. And you know the British people spurn makeup, but the American people spurn alcohol. And uh, when he was in Britain, this lady came up to him and said, uh, Mr. Graham, do you think women should wear makeup? And the obvious answer behind the question was, please say no. You know, it's a dreadful thing. It's a sinful thing. And Billy said in his lovely American accent, I looked at her and I said, lady, you could use a little. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> you just never get away with that today. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's 1959. <clears throat> We're very thankful, aren't we, for the man or the woman who gets things done in the church in a godly way, not in a superficial way. And so here in the church gathering, Paul says, the work of the men is not to be done with natural abilities. Uh, natural abilities can be brought under the control of the Lord Jesus. But if you depend on your natural abilities, you've made a big mistake. And the work done by the women is not to be done with um, superficial qualities, but with profound things. So that's, I think, what verses 8 to 10 are all about. And now we come to um, verses 11 to 15, and uh, these are very difficult verses, as I say, to read aloud. Uh, women, quiet, deceived, saved through childbirth. It, it just all sounds wrong. But uh, we're coming to these, as I say, with humility. So here's the other great key to the gathering. It's the preaching of the Word of God in the family of believers. 
And the first thing that Paul says in chapter 2, verse 11, is that women should learn. And we mustn't miss this, because the secular first century saw women as B-grade and not to be part of the learning process in so many uh, contexts. Paul brings the women straight into the classroom to say, you are to, to learn with everybody else. But he says she should learn in quietness, chapter 2, verse 11, which is the same word as in chapter 2, verse 2, meaning peacefully. Now, he might have said everybody is to learn peacefully. Um, and we might ask the question why he didn't. He might have said she is to learn peacefully like everybody else, but he doesn't. But he does say that this uh, quietness has got to do with being peaceful, not anxious, not agitated, not um, distressed. And he says, verse 11, full submission to God, full submission to the word of God. He's not, in verse 11, asking all women to be submissive to all men. That's a complete mistake. I mean, there's a sense in which all believers are to be submissive to all people, but he's not here asking women to be submissive to men generally. He's calling on women when they come into the learning context to be submissive to the word being taught, as all men should be. Then in verse 12, Paul says positively that he allocates the teaching role to the men, or God allocates the teaching role to the men. This is not because men are more intelligent. We all know women who are better communicators than their husbands. <clears throat> I know some women who are married to ministers who preach better than their husbands. And I know women in ministry who are smarter than their husbands, wiser, more knowledgeable. Paul's talking about something else. And the, the, the something else is that God has a plan. And the plan is that men would exercise some godly leadership in the family of God, capital F, just as men would exercise some godly leadership in the family at home, small f. And the obvious point, and this may be the most important thing for you to grasp from what I think of this, is that the big F family is to reinforce the small f family. In both of the families, God has his roles to play. You know that God has three institutions, the government and the church and the human family. And in all those institutions, he has a structure of authority and support. And so in the government, you've got leadership and you've got the citizen and in the church, you've got the teacher or the pastor and you've got the people and in the family, human family, you've got the husband, the wife and the children. There is the leadership and there is the support. When he addresses people of the three institutions in the New Testament, he, of course, addresses the believing citizen to be cooperative to the leadership. And he addresses the pastor to be godly and he addresses the people to be godly and he addresses the husband to be godly and the wife to be godly. But he doesn't address the king, the king or the president because he doesn't assume that they're part of the born again community. But the roles are to be acknowledged in all three of his institutions. So when the husband comes to church, having been given the job of loving leadership in the home, it's not going to help him if he turns up and finds the roles have been completely confused in the church family. That's, I think, the point. It's going to be very confusing, isn't it? If the husband comes thinking, I'm trying to be a good leader at home, but I discover when I get to the church family that nothing really matters. 
Um, one of the things I used to do when I would have lunch with um, men in the church was uh, ask them if they prayed with their wives. And uh, a number of the men found this very awkward. And they found it very awkward because they were not as consistent as their wives. Their wives, they freely confessed, were more, more godly, more spiritual. And so they didn't step up to initiate prayerfulness. And I used to say to these guys, you know, don't wait till you're a great Christian to pray with your wife. Wait till you've got a great saviour. If you've got a great saviour, say to your wife one day when she's in a good mood, I haven't been very good at initiating prayer together. You know, we sleep together and we go out together and we have fun together and we fight together, but we don't pray together. And um, wait till she's in a good mood and suggest that you have a minute of prayer together. Don't make it a big issue. Let's just have a minute of prayer. And so often these husbands would go off with this new goal of raising the subject with their wife to have a time of prayer together. One, one Sunday after I'd had lunch with a guy during the week, this lady came out. It still chokes me up when I think about it. This lady came out and she left the floor and threw her arms around my neck and hugged me because she said she'd been waiting so many years for her husband to pray with her. And that's the loving leadership which um, God is looking for, isn't it? Please notice in chapter 2, verse 12, that the teaching and the authority go together. This is very important. The teaching is the authority. The authority is the teaching. Paul says, teach or assume authority. That's the same thing. You can't run the church by saying the teaching is nice, but actually Fred, our senior minister, he's the authority. No, no, the teaching is the authority. The authority is the teaching. We have to help our people to listen to the teaching and to assess it in a humble way. We want the church, don't we, to see that the teaching is the authority, not the pastor. Theologically, these two belong together. Teaching is the authority. The authority is the teaching. Grammatically, they're joined together by a little word. And authority is not a nasty word. God exercises authority beautifully. Jesus exercises authority beautifully. Scripture exercises authority beautifully. Now, why should the men do this work? And why should they do it well? Because this is going to help the church family to hear the word of God and see God's pattern at work. If the men do the teaching well the people who come to the church will have the benefit of hearing the word of God and seeing God's plan in action. That's the point, I think. And it'll be good men doing good teaching. And when it's been done well, there's very little opposition to it. It is frustrating if the men do the teaching badly and people are sitting there thinking this could be done so much better. And then up comes a whole lot of grumbling. But if good men will do it well, as well as we can, there won't be all the grumbling. And the reason, verse 13, is because God is the God of order. We realize this from 2.13, creation. So it's not a cultural thing Paul is talking about. This is a creation thing. It's not a local thing. It's not just Ephesus, as some people have said. Now, this is global. And it's not a temporary thing. This is a, not an outdated thing. This is a creation thing. It's to last as long as the creation lasts. 
And if you want to know what happens when God's pattern is ignored, look at verse 14, where we read, Adam wasn't the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, this sounds terrible, doesn't it? But what we're discovering is that the word of God was ignored at the fall. Everything got turned upside down. The plan was that God would speak to the man who take care of the wife and they would run the animal world. Everything went upside down. This animal suddenly spoke to the woman who told the man what to do and they hid from God. It all got inverted. And the man was there at the time. We know he was there at the time. And he abandoned or resigned or abdicated his role. No wonder God in Genesis says, Adam, where are you? Come and explain what's gone wrong. Because if Adam had taken his role seriously, there wouldn't have been this mess. And so the Apostle Paul is aware that when the woman got deceived, it had a lot to do with the man being irresponsible. So if somebody says, well, this teaching in 1 Timothy 2 is all cultural, we want to say, verse 13, no, it's creation. And if somebody says, this is just for a perfect world, we want to say, verse 14, no, this is for as long as things are in danger of going upside down. God is the God of beautiful order. And the fall shows what happens when we ignore him. Now, the most puzzling verse is probably verse 15, that women will be saved through childbirth, literally generating children. Uh, it's a one-off, it's a hapax in the Bible. This only comes up once. It cannot mean that Christian women will never die in childbirth. That, it cannot mean that. Surely it does not mean, as some people think, that they'll be saved through the divine childbirth. That seems to me to be too many backward somersaults to come up with that. But uh, tell me if I'm wrong. It seems to me that what Paul is saying is that if the woman will be prepared to let the man have a good downward teaching role, she is able to have an incredibly powerful upward influencing role. That's what I think he's saying. If the, if the woman is prepared to have the man in a downward way teach well, she or lead well, she is able to have an incredibly powerful influence. And you know from the statistics that um, faithful women raising faithful children has produced the, basically the leadership of the church. So the man who teaches God's word may bring that word down to family and even if he's a pastor down to the church family, but the woman who's given children, and not all women are given children, but if they are given children or if they have an influence on children in the church, an incredibly powerful role upwards. A few uh, concluding comments before you can throw your rocks at me. Um, is it possible... Is it possible that the God who loves the world and has put his church family into the world thinks that a well-functioning church could be useful in reaching the world? And I think the answer is yes. I think God considers that a well-ordered church is an instrument and an aid and a help to the reaching of the world. And biblically that's true and historically that's true. So we mustn't separate these final verses in chapter 2 from the early verses in chapter 2. As I said before, God has not announced his love for lost people and then turned around and said, well, I've now got a really nasty way to run your church. 
which is going to frustrate you and annoy the world. No, God has said, here's a way of running the church in a way that will be most productive and done well, most fruitful. So these verses are not anti-equality. These are not a contradiction of Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28 is about equality, which we all have in being humans and in Christ. But uh, these verses are talking about roles. These verses are not oddball in the New Testament. They fit with Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and 1 Peter 3. This is a very big theme running through the New Testament. These verses are not antiquated like slavery verses because slavery was never part of God's original plan. But order was part of God's original plan. These verses do not ignore great women like Deborah in the Old Testament, but we need to remember that Deborah was a rebuke to the men of the time. You know how all the judges in the book of Judges are kind of like jokes? You know, there's a left-handed guy, there's the illegitimate son, there's the baby of the family, there's the woman. It's almost as though God is saying, I'll rescue you, but I'm going to raise up somebody who's going to be a joke in your community. I'm going to mock you in a way, in a friendly way, I'm going to mock you as I rescue you. And uh, so many missionary ladies are rebuke, aren't they, to the men of the church, pioneering. And if a woman breaks into a town in a remote part of the world and she is the only believer there, it's a shame to the men. And if she begins to evangelize and to teach and to lead the church, God bless her. But we're not saying that that's the ideal church world, are we? Because there could well be some men taking a lead as well. Let me finish with a few quotes from some women who've written books on this subject. Claire Smith says these are confronting verses, they're counter-cultural verses, but they're not complicated. Mary Anders, who I think is American, says getting women into pulpits to attract a sceptical world is not working. I don't know if she's right or not, but that's what she said. And Carrie Sandon, who is a British um, Christian worker, says somebody somewhere should do some research on what impact our over-feminized church is having on the mission to the world. So here are some tricky verses, but wonderful verses. Uh, God, who is perfect in love and wisdom and power, has given them to us. They need our very careful reading and our very careful heeding as well. And as Paul says in 2.7, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. And as Jesus said, the truth sets free.